0: Welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry every week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk.
1: And I'm Annie Kriegbaum.
0: Annie, how are you? I miss you. Oh, do you? Yes.
1: Oh, I miss you too.
0: We're like going back into quarantine and like the idea that I'm ever going to be able to go to New York City at this juncture is seeming like a pipe dream. How are you? I am good. I mean, like it's been a weird few weeks waiting for the results from our surrogate, but guess what? She's pregnant. We did it. You did it. I got well, go her uh, in San Diego.
1: You didn't do it.
0: No, I I mean I did it with the assistance of uh, medicine and technology. That's amazing. But we're we're so excited she is due in March of twenty twenty one. We're so cool. excited. We can't do wait.
1: Think, <laughs> do you think she'll rebel against you and, and Casey and like hate products?
0: I mean, probably. I mean, I bought her one. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations about not, like, gendering her from the get-go. So we're not going to do the total gender-neutral thing, but just not buying her everything princess and pink. And, of course, like, the first thing I bought was a Misha and Puff onesie that is pink. But I my excuse is that I loved pink when I was little.
1: Yeah, who says, why are you trying to gender pink? No?
0: Exactly. Exactly. So what are we talking about this week?
1: This week... Everybody buckle in because it's a bit of a serious episode, but really interesting nonetheless. We have an interview with Dr. Robert Meisner,
0: who is the medical director of McLean Hospital's ketamine service, and he's also a clinical fellow in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. So he is basically one of the foremost experts on the use of ketamine in the treatment of major depressive disorder. Also, we thought this was, you know, an interesting time to talk about ketamine because it's been in the news recently with the death of Elijah McLean, who was injected with a sedative amount of ketamine, but way too much ketamine by um, a first responder. So we're going to ask Dr. Meisner about that.
1: But first, let's get to our top stories.
0: There's so much this week that went on. There's a lot. Kick us off.
1: So, an update from last week Kim Kardashian's deal with Cody went through. So, they bought a $200 million stake in KKW Cosmetics. And this apparently, if you believe the Kardashians and how they report their financials, makes her a billionaire.
0: Bravo for Kim. She has 14 like
1: Frisian ponies.
0: Yeah, some like stallions or something. So, that's great for them. Susan Yara posted an apology video and in true YouTube apology video form, she cried and she basically said that her partnership with Notorium wasn't finalized until the last few weeks. So technically when she was posting about the brand and giving discount codes, she wasn't officially a co-founder. But a lot of commenters were kind of saying she felt like, it felt like she was backtracking because in a couple articles that came out about her involvement, It said that she's been involved since the beginning and, and she basically should have disclosed her participation and her involvement regardless of whether paperwork was signed. That would be the right thing to do.
1: Another top news. Let's see if I can get this right because I'm not a huge YouTube beauty fan, but I am tangentially aware of who these people are, especially Jeffree Star and James Charles, who are back in the news this week. If you are familiar at all with the drama that happened, I believe, last year, there was a cancel moment against James Charles, who is a very young beauty YouTuber. I think he had the fastest growing audience on YouTube at one point, and then he had the fastest declining audience at one point when last year, a fellow YouTube makeup influencer named Tati. Do you know these people, Nick?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I know I met Jeffrey and I know who Tati is and I know who James is.
1: Okay. So Tati, apparently they were all cool before, but Tati at one point last year made a video. It was entitled "By Sister, I think. <laughs>
0: Because James calls all of his followers sister.
1: Got it. Um she made a video basically accusing James Charles of being this like menace to society.
0: Like soliciting underage boys and like all this stuff, and basically said that she wasn't gonna stay silent any longer and it turned into this huge like drama between them, right?
1: Yeah, but really a bunch of people turned against James Charles and they canceled him, as the internet will do. And you know, this has huge implications for someone who so young and has built their whole career as like a makeup influencer on YouTube. This was like their main source of income. Flash forward to today. Okay. There's another player in this game. His name is Shane. So he's big on YouTube for being a, I guess, quote unquote, documentary video maker.
0: I have a question. Do adults think that we're crazy when we talk about these people?
1: I think that we're crazy for having to talk about
0: these people. (laughs) Hold on, hold on, hold on. So James Charles was in a fight with Tati. Let's like let them be in a fight on one side. On the other side, we have Shane Dawson and Jeffree Star, who've become friends.
1: Because they're both YouTubers with huge followings.
0: Right. And Shane made a documentary video about Jeffree. And then they released a collaboration palette with Jeffree Star Cosmetics.
1: Called Conspiracy. So, there were rumors online. I think when all the James Charles drama was happening last year that Jeffrey and Shane had kind of helped orchestrate this whole thing with Tati. So there was that was a brewing in the background this week. It came out that Shane Dawson is now cancelled.
0: Well, he's cancelled for being a racist and a like idiot
1: right. So he's and in fact, YouTube's actually demonetized his channel channels. He had three. So this is a huge blow to his career. Meanwhile, Tati Westbrook, who had played a huge hand in canceling James Charles last year, has now come out with a new video saying that Jeffrey basically made her do it.
0: That Jeffrey made her cancel James.
1: And, and Shane was also involved because they were quote unquote co-conspirators. Quote, so it's very confusing. If you don't care, I think that that's fine that you don't care. You should probably <laughs> keep it that way. But the reason that this matters for us is like it or not, YouTube influencers, they have a huge impact on the industry and they can really move a product. So they're basically like a marketing channel for brands.
0: I mean, the necessary, like we found some of our our most successful influencer activations were on YouTube. People click Mm -hmm. to buy so often on YouTube and even more so than on Instagram.
1: It really is like an industry shakeup in a way because it just shows kind of the fragility of some of these quote unquote, if you think about an influencer as a channel, one day to the next, that can change drastically.
0: In conclusion, Jeffree Star is canceled. He has no, been canceled for a is long he? time.
1: I feel like yeah. he's, I feel like his audience, like, I feel like he's uncancelable. He, do- I mean, he doesn't people, answer to anyone. He owns his own brand.
0: Like, and, But he's like, he's apologized for like posing next to someone in a Confederate flag shirt. He was calling himself the lipstick Nazi for a little bit, which he apologized for. He's done racist things and made videos that are completely tasteless and racist. And he's apologized for that. Um, But I guess he's not canceled. Shane Dawson officially canceled.
1: He did some pretty, we don't have to like go into detail about the gross videos that came out about him this week, but they're bad.
0: They're bad. He's canceled. James Charles redeemed.
1: I don't understand why he got canceled to begin with. It sounded very rumor-y and it sounds like Tati's backtracking. So I guess time will tell. Time will tell. She promises that between her and her lawyers, they will release more information with "quote unquote" receipts very soon. So we will. We're on the edge of our seats.
0: I'm I'm waiting. So I read an interesting article in Glossy. The sales of hair loss supplements have drastically increased year over year, uh, and Google searches and Sephora.com searches for hair loss are up like hundreds of percent higher than last year, which. The article was saying indicates that maybe there's a correlation between searches for hair loss supplements and COVID related stress and hair loss.
1: I believe it. I've been losing my hair in huge chunks.
0: How much, like, how much hair are we talking?
1: A lot. But the other thing is, I haven't really been doing anything to my hair. So I guess, like, the one day a week I brush it, it looks like a lot is coming out, but maybe. It's been shedding all week and I just didn't
0: notice. I would understand that like, and and we actually talk about this with Dr. Meisner, that like the stress and the trauma that people are experiencing with first with quarantine and then with the Black Lives Matter movement, that there's a lot of sort of health
1: implications.
0: Yeah. And a lot of space for mental health to deteriorate.
1: In other news, last week on June 25th, Unilever announced that it would rename their skincare product line that's called Fair and Lovely and remove the terms whitening, fair, and lightening from its packaging. Although Unilever hasn't gone as far as Johnson and Johnson, who is going to stop selling its line of whitening products in India, Asia, and the Middle East, and this is all, of course, in response to just brands getting called out for being racist.
0: And for promoting this idea that like fairness is a virtue or fairness is something that is that should be a goal. Right. Those
1: Eurocentric beauty standards are slowly being squashed out. So that concludes
0: top stories of the week. And now we're going to talk ketamine. But first, just to note that we actually had two interviews on ketamine, one from the perspective of a doctor and the other from a perspective of a patient. And we're going to release the patient story and that interview as a bonus episode on Tuesday.
1: So if we rewind to last summer, you actually are the one, Nick, that introduced me to the idea of ketamine to treat depression and PTSD. I was in a very dark place at the time, and I had never really taken an antidepressant before. The idea that it would take, I think, up to two two to four weeks to actually feel an effect, and even then it might not work, really freaked me out. So ketamine sounded great because it seemed more fast-acting,
0: The idea is basically you go, you can go like on your lunch break to one of these clinics, at least in LA, and you are hooked up to an IV. You're given a very, very light dilution of ketamine. So you don't, you're not tripping and you're certainly not sedated, but you do like five or so treatments and you start feeling better after like the first or second treatment. So it it can work in as soon as 24 hours.
1: Yeah. So I think somebody that is going through a major depressive episode, that quick result idea is very intriguing because you feel like you really can't be in that place for very long. For me too, the other thing about ketamine therapy that was really intriguing is there's a lot of stigma attached to being on antidepressants. Whenever I would talk about going on an antidepressant or going to a psychiatrist, I was immediately met with this like, have you tried ayahuasca? Have you tried mushrooms? You know, So when you mentioned ketamine therapy and this idea that you could just like go in and be treated immediately and that it was, it's done by anesthesiologists. So these are real doctors too that are administering it.
0: So we were going to do this episode on ketamine because we were both curious about how it works, who's a good candidate Things like that. And then last week, we began frantically texting because we saw the news about the death of Elijah McClain last year, who was the 23 year old black man in Aurora, Colorado, who was given a shot of ketamine by a first responder and died of a heart attack about a week later.
1: Yeah, so we were really lucky to be able to speak with Dr. Meisner on this. And I think get a better understanding about ketamine therapy, both from a therapeutic standpoint, but also get his take on the darker side of this drug and get more context about why it would be used in that way.
0: It's a complicated issue because on the one hand, people are using ketamine and having really positive experiences using ketamine in a therapeutic setting. On the other hand, it's being used as a weapon against people of color and black men with some some regularity. I was reading an article last week that was saying that, you know, the use of ketamine in altercations with the police is significantly increased over the last few years. So it's a fraught topic. And we were lucky to have, as you say, Dr. Meisner to weigh in. Firstly, we just wanted to hear about your background and how you came to be medical director of Harvard and McLean Hospital's ketamine service program.
2: It's a funny story and it starts a really long time ago. When I was an undergrad, I was really interested in critical theory and what's called epistemology in literary theory and English literature. And I was especially interested with questions about how we think we know what we know. And that led me to a PhD program in cultural anthropology at Harvard, where I began some work in Latin America and then transitioned over to Africa with specific interest in child soldiers in pain. Part of the, the plan was to do both an MD and a PhD in order to be best positioned to really understand in a way that could be meaningful, a fairly abstract and difficult to translate body of work from philosophy and cultural anthropology into real world medicine, my advisor and I decided that given interests in pain and how we express the unexpressible, anesthesia would be a good way to move forward after med school. So I started an anesthesia program And I quickly realized that although I really had a lot of respect for anesthesiologists, I really did not like the day-to-day work of anesthesiology. I knew though that I had always been drawn and there was a very close alliance between the body of philosophy through medical anthropology and psychiatry. And so I transitioned in, but when I transitioned into psychiatry, I always had my eye on ketamine because it was a very unique medication as an anesthetic. And people were just beginning to note that there may be some psychiatric relevance. So I followed this quite closely for many years. And there came a point at which there was sufficient evidence in respected journals and a consensus call from the American conservative academic cohort that essentially said at this point, although ketamine was FDA approved as an anesthetic, it would be unethical not to make this available as a potential treatment for the right patient population under extremely close monitoring and with assurance of further research.
0: Treatment for depression?
2: For major depressive disorder, primarily. It was at that point that we accepted a clinical mandate and I felt we could launch a service that responsibly and carefully met a clinical mandate in an evidence-based, data-driven way with the caveat that we would be leaders in admitting what we don't know and we would approach it with a great degree of humility. So that's how we ended up getting started. And uh, IV ketamine has turned out to be something that is very misunderstood in the public. I get calls from all over the country, specifically from LA and from the New York City area, about cases that have gone terribly wrong precisely because it is misunderstood. And there's a real public health responsibility to better understand where this very unique drug can be remarkably effective and powerful and where it can be dangerous.
0: What makes it unique?
2: So ketamine is not a natural occurring compound. In the, in the 60s, it was synthesized by a chemist named Kelvin Stevens. By 1963, it had some uses in a patent in Belgium and was beginning to be used in veterinary medicine. And then in 99, after it showed its ability to be an effective anesthetic, basically replacing PCP, the DEA scheduled it as a, what we call a Schedule 3 drug. And so it it ended up actually on the WHO's critical medication list worldwide fairly early. Part of it is its safety profile. You don't need, in theory, as much expertise to administer ketamine as an anesthetic as you do many other agents or combinations of agents. The other thing is that it went off patent quite a while ago. And so it's extremely cheap. You know, a vial is three or four dollars. I mean, a bottle of Tylenol costs more than that, right? So the WHO picked it up. And to the best of my knowledge, as of the most recent study I've seen, it remains the most commonly prescribed general anesthetic in the world. What makes it different from a psychiatric perspective is that A, it has introduced the possibility that there's a mechanism relevant to depression and possibly other disorders that frankly, we didn't really know was at play. And so it really was quite a surprise after like decades of really earnest efforts to extract every benefit from what was called the monoamine hypothesis of depression, which is mostly about neurotransmitters. Ketamine seems to, Appears to have introduced to us a first in class or a novel mechanism, one that we're now leveraging through small doses of ketamine alone.
0: So, to paraphrase what you're saying, you know, initially psychiatry was based on this idea of you fuck with the neurotransmitters and you can help people get out of depression and anxiety and other mental illnesses by sort of mechanisms regarding brain synapses and things like that, ketamine works differently.
2: Well, I would say that ketamine involves all those things, but it does so through a pathway that we didn't know was relevant to mood disorders.
1: Could you dig into what exactly is ketamine therapy for depression and who is a good candidate?
2: Ketamine therapy for depression is really different than ketamine therapy for anesthesia ketamine for the treatment of major depressive disorder, the dose is very low. A good target range is probably between about 0.5 milligrams per kilogram and one milligram per kilogram. When you get to dosing, that's a lot higher than that. And when you get to certain routes of administration and really high dosing, especially at high frequency, then you're getting to addiction level dosing. Who's a good candidate? So Here we need to distinguish between IV ketamine, which is FDA approved as an anesthetic, but not as an antidepressant, and S-ketamine, which goes by the trade name Spravado. That's the nasal spray. Yeah, the intranasal spray. So whereas IV ketamine went through all its trials decades ago for a different indication and got an FDA approval, and a lot of money was spent on that. Sprovado was just recently approved by the FDA as an antidepressant for major depressive disorder that has been resistant to treatment with other medicines. By contrast, when we give IV ketamine, I mean, one of my jobs literally every week is to stay up to date on the latest in the evolution of IV ketamine literature. It didn't go through phase trials. And so it is a moving target. We don't know some of the the best practices in IV ketamine, whereas we at least have strong guidance from a really strong science team and the FDA on Spravato.
0: So how depressed do you have to be for ketamine to be a reasonable treatment?
2: It used to be that we only ever offered it if you truly met criteria for not only treatment refractory or resistant depression and those definitions that there is actually some debate about what, what that means. But usually it means several failed trials of an antidepressant of adequate length and duration. So like if you were on Prozac for, for four or five months at the maximum dose and then you switch to Zoloft and augmented with Welbutrin, and the dosing was adequate, and the time duration was adequate, and there was nothing. Only then would we begin to think about things like ketamine, S-ketamine, TMS, ECT.
0: Which is electroconvulsive therapy.
2: Yeah. Now, that's beginning to change a little bit, in part because ketamine and S-ketamine tend to work much more quickly than the SSRIs and SNRIs. And in some cases, more quickly than the other interventions I just mentioned, so-called neurotherapeutic interventions.
0: The S-ketamine spray, it's said to work in 24 hours.
2: You can see results even sooner than that, actually. Now, that's not always what happens, but that has certainly been very well described. The same actually is true for IV ketamine as well. Where media got it wrong, And what led to a whole lot of misunderstanding that we try to do our best to clarify is that some of the early research studies that were so important, and so they get talked a lot about by us, were one administration of IV ketamine and suddenly the suicidality going away. The problem is that was often very well-intentioned journalism that captured a day or two as opposed to... Say long-term ethnography that followed someone for a year, and the reality is, one infusion is very unlikely to have very lasting power at all. You would need to often do serial infusions in order to get staying power.
0: Research has shown that traditional antidepressants, SSRIs, are they're not a hundred percent effective. So not everyone will respond. No matter sort of on the spectrum of depressed, depression, anxiety suicidal ideation, all of that stuff, SSRIs and and other antidepressant pills are not a home run.
2: No. And the more trials you have within a given class, the lower the probability you're going to respond in that class, basically.
0: So that's a pretty big population that ketamine has the potential to treat.
2: And I think that what's changing is there is now some consensus that S-ketamine and ketamine can actually be introduced earlier in that treatment algorithm. For S-ketamine to be FDA approved on label, you still need to meet criteria for treatment resistant major depressive disorder. But I find myself more and more inclined to say to patients, rather than going through, coming when you've had 20 trials, five years later of medicines that are not working, maybe we should do a trial of this sooner because we tend to know pretty quickly whether this mechanism is gonna work for you or not. So why not introduce it sooner? Now, there's a risk-benefit analysis that goes into that. But the same, by the way, is true for ECT. I have had many patients who have told me, because I also have done quite a bit of ECT, I wish I had done this 10 years ago. It would have saved me 10 years of medication trials. Consider the following statistics. The average number of suicides per day in 2017 was 124 and at 0.4 in the U.S. In 2005, it was 86.6. From 2005 to 2017, there was a, over a 43% increase, 43% in suicides per year in the general population. Among veterans... The rate is about one and a half the rate for non-veterans, so it's even worse. It increased by 76% between 2005 and 2017. Amazingly, suicide is the second leading cause of death for individuals between the age of 10 years old and 34 years old. The second leading cause of death. I don't understand how that's not front page news because there are preventable components to it. It's the fourth leading cause of death for individuals between age 35 and 54. MDD, major depressive disorder, is the leading cause, the leading cause of disability worldwide. When you do the math, that means one person every 40 seconds in the U.S. commits suicide. Just think about that for a second, right? We've gotten lost somewhere in the world of, of American medicine in choosing to ignore the severity of this emergency. And I think it's partly because we were hopeless. We didn't really think there was much that could be done. And one of the things that has happened is that a new world of treatment is opening up. But one of the reasons I'm really worried about these numbers is because this is pre-COVID. I also work in the emergency room at Mass General Hospital, and I can tell you that within 48 hours of the first real media revelation of just how bad COVID might be and the rise of unemployment, we had patients coming in who were suicidal and needed admission because of the socioeconomic consequences of COVID. You can't talk about COVID without talking about socioeconomics, without talking about mental health effects that are now coming to light as ER volumes for psychiatric ERs like that at MGH go up. You can't talk about these things in isolation without risk of overemphasizing efforts on one point at the expense of missing something that may be also extraordinarily lethal or a major cause of morbidity and mortality.
0: To immediately have an impact or to immediately sort of start to address what seems to be a huge crisis, you know, with suicide increasing 43 percent, is a solution increasing the availability and the access to psychiatric medication? Is it making therapy free for everyone? How do you address it?
2: We need to think longer term about prevention and resilience There are things that we can do culturally and in society and in schools to give individuals the the tools that protect them against the development of all the stuff we've mentioned during difficult times. One of those very simple things is simple mindfulness meditation. And if you haven't tried it, it's really hard. It's not simple at all. It's also more and more evidence based as a really, really effective tool. There are other simple things to build resilience that we can do. A lot of it is around staying interconnected with each other socially, around not being afraid, to be aware of our shared vulnerability. And what we actually find is if that you reframe shared vulnerability, not as some kind of commiseration that begets more hopelessness but as an opportunity to recognize that each of us is imperfect and struggling with something and that each of us trusts someone else enough to open up and share there's an extraordinary amount of strength in that kind of alliance and trust
0: is zoom and facetime enough to facilitate that
2: yeah so i mean this is where humility is so important at this moment in science in particular because you guys know that psychiatrists jumped all over social media as the great enemy of i'm I'm overstating but the great enemy of like the century right it's way more complicated than that in fact Some people have made it through this period without having to come to the emergency room or start an antidepressant or progress toward ketamine because they have really engaged on social media platforms in healthy, productive ways. We don't have enough data yet to know what distinguishes who's going to benefit most from what kind of connection or what kind of connection is best. But that whole world, including the rather arrogant assumptions of psychiatry around that world, are being challenged and should be challenged.
0: So you're someone who has dedicated a significant number of your career days and hours researching ketamine therapy. What was your reaction when you saw the news about Elijah McClain, the young man in Colorado who was sedated with ketamine by first responders and ended up having a heart attack and dying.
2: This is my personal opinion. I was furious. We haven't talked as much about the side effects of ketamine or the contraindications. Now, it is true that there are certain circumstances in which in certain environments where certain things are known about a patient's physiology, There is an argument that ketamine can be used as a sedating medication, a restraining medication that preserves safety, not only of the patient, but also of people around. But there's an awful lot of information you need to know before you know if that person is a candidate for that intervention and if the risk benefit is warranted. In my opinion, it is in most cases, at best, extremely difficult, if not impossible, to tell if in the field, during an acute crisis, someone has a risk benefit that supports the forced administration of any kind of ketamine on them against their will.
0: I believe it was an EMT who administered it. Should an EMT have access to that medication?
2: EMTs should have access to ketamine for certain indications. In my opinion, the indication in this situation is not one that should be in the toolbox of possibilities for ketamine's use from an ambulance. Remember, there are people who are going to disagree because they're going to say, look, we gave 19 year olds vials of ketamine in Vietnam to give to each other in the middle of a war because it was safer. And they could at least provide some pain relief and help get somebody back to a medic, you know, where it was safer. But we want to be careful that we don't default to a military model from, you know, the 60s as we try to advance, especially, especially at this historical moment.
0: How do you see the future of ketamine therapy? Do you see it becoming more widely available so that, so that it doesn't have to be like, I'm going to drop $3,000 on this thing?
2: I think literally about half, half my day when I'm not in the emergency room is often trying to troubleshoot insurance coverage. And that's a little bit maddening, but it's actually a really good thing because a year ago, we couldn't even get him on the phone to talk about it, uh, with some exceptions. So we're in the middle, and it's a, it's a bit of a running joke on my team, that literally day-to-day, week-to-week, our spreadsheet is outdated because we don't know what the next day is going to bring.
1: But the good news is ketamine therapy, you're saying, is becoming more and more available and more and more covered by insurance.
2: It varies state-to-state to, state to further make things complex, but I've not seen the level of communication and um, conversation at the levels that are it's now happening at any point in the past several years more so than I have in the last month
0: So if people are interested in learning more about ketamine therapy, you know would you recommend them googling ketamine therapy near me and looking at Yelp reviews to find a clinic that has good Yelp reviews? How would you even approach?
2: What I would probably do is first start with something like a a staunch federal organization that's evidence-based in its descriptions of, of things. Okay. So a clinician for evaluation to determine if you're a good candidate. This is where things get hard, As I said, in the world of IV there really is no federal oversight, and we're working to change that, or state oversight. We're working to change that, but at the moment, there's not. You want first to make sure that the provider is within kind of the established norm of accepted treatment, evidence-based treatment. And so that often means asking really specific questions about what their protocols are, And then probably giving a call to maybe an academic center and asking if it's possible to do a teleconsult or a teleinformational consult, being clear that maybe you're not in an area where you can be treated there, but could you do a one-time consultation because you're trying to understand if this seems reasonable.
0: Do you think that ketamine has the potential to be as big of a sort of defining moment in the history of psychology and as Prozac?
2: I believe that the mechanism has the potential to be a turning point for a select group of disorders in psychiatry that by the numbers are of particular interest in the public health. What I want to be very careful about is to note that I am seeing over and over and over and over again, private companies generally making statements that are not evidence-based, claiming that ketamine does things that in my experience as a clinician, it does not do. And in, in, in my reading of the literature, there is no evidence that it does. And so absence federal oversight, this will continue to go on. <music>
0: That was super fascinating.
1: There wasn't a lot of good news.
0: Ketamine therapy doesn't seem like a silver bullet that is going to cure depression. It seems like there is a lot of potential in the therapeutic use, but it's an emerging science and area of study.
1: Well, anything that has to do with neurons and the human brain seems to always be... We forget that we don't know much at all.
0: And if they don't know like how it's working at Harvard, then... They definitely don't know.
1: It is like very promising to hear that there is a treatment for really quick onset deep depression.
0: Are you on antidepressants?
1: Yeah, I'm on Cymbalta. And then I'm on um, Gabapentin, for, which is an antidepressant, but it's an anti-anxiety to sleep.
0: I've like literally been on every single antidepressant. I've been on Prozac. I've been on Zoloft. I've been on Cymbalta. I've been on Effexor. I've been on Celexa. I've been on gabapentin, lamictal, and my, I I wouldn't even classify my depression or anxiety as like major depressive disorder, but it's something Mm -hmm. that like I am, I guess in a way like it's drug resistant in that none of these drugs have really worked. But I also think like how much is your makeup, like your character and how much is something that's treatable, you know?
1: I know. I've always been very resistant to taking any sort of medication. And then I really had no choice last year after I had a crazy summer and I had to get on something because I couldn't function.
0: What were your symptoms?
1: Um, I couldn't sleep. This was after the car wreck. I couldn't sleep. I, uh, I really couldn't sleep. I was getting maybe an hour a night broken up into like 10-minute chunks. Um, and I lost, I think, 15 pounds over the course of like five weeks. And yeah, I was just crying all the time. It was insane. I wasn't eating.
0: Was it diagnosed as PTSD?
1: It was diagnosed as a major depressive episode. As and a result yeah, I of guess, like
0: a traumatic experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, it It sucked. I mean, that's what I thought existed was something like what he was describing as quick acting ketamine treatment. I thought that, that something like that would be available to me. So it was almost like seeking help was was even more upsetting because, yeah, you would just hear that. This is going to take a while to work, even if it, if it does work, you know.
0: And nothing that I've ever tried makes you feel like you don't wake up one day and you're like, oh, I don't feel depressed anymore. Or Like, I don't feel anxious anymore. Right. It's like, do I feel a little bit less anxious than I did last week? It's like it's all very cloudy.
1: And then there's the overprescribing of, you know, Xanax and things like that, which is the other issue. And you do need something like quick acting. Then suddenly you're taking Xanax or I don't know what kind of drugs, what class of drugs is, right? Benzodiazepines. This is, this is the uninformed benzo, part of the benzo, show.
0: <laughs> benzodiazepines?
1: Yeah, benzos. You know, and then you're taking, I mean, this is my problem, and then you're taking um Adderall to make yourself productive during the daytime, so then you're suddenly on a speedball every day of your life.
0: After talking to Dr. Meisner, would you try ketamine therapy?
1: Um No, because he, what he's saying is it's like kind of a last resort, right? And so... I feel like I'm responding well to my current treatment. And so, yeah, I don't feel like I'm at this like last resort stage.
0: One of the sort of things I was thinking about the whole time we spoke to him was about access to care and how much of a privilege it is to be able to even like talk about your feelings,
1: yeah. you know, and, yeah. and to
0: get let alone get treatment for them. But sort of like figuring out ways in which we, as a society, can, can offer more, like, w- wider access to treatment and to, like, communities and platforms that can dispense some level of knowledge and resources regarding mental health. I want Dr. Meisner to be our resident psychiatric resource.
1: Same. And he,
0: and he said he, he's, he's open to it. He'll get on the phone with us again. I know. Which is a good reason why everyone should send in their questions. And we can maybe collect a few questions and get them answered by our Harvard psychiatrist friend.
1: I doubt he would. He'd probably be like, this is a major HIPAA violation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know what time it is, Annie?
1: What time is it, Nick?
0: Product review time. I want to talk about this product that I've almost finished. If you can see the little amber bottle that I have in my hands, I have like a few shakes left. It is the new company's topical C vitamin C powder. And it is a half an ounce of ascorbic acid. That's what vitamin C is and is amazing because you can add it to any moisturizer. You can add it to any serum, uh, water-based, and it adds that brightening effect that vitamin C has, but it actually is the only stable form of vitamin C powder. Because if it's in a water formula or if it's in any other kind of formula, I guess it oxidizes.
1: I think it loses its potency quicker. I think it's kind of like not being in a dark bottle, you know.
0: So this is in like a, you know, light safe amber bottle and it's a powder, so there's no water. But the minute you add it, you know, to water, you expose it to water, you're putting it on your face and you're getting the effect. And I find that it just gives like a kind of glowy, like over a few days of use, it gives you a kind of like glowy finish. To be honest, like since we're alone, um, I mix the vitamin C powder with a vitamin C serum just because I want a little bit of extra vitamin C, a little bit extra punch. You can't really go wrong. It's pretty safe. It doesn't sting. And I like it. I've gone through the whole bottle.
1: You really have. I, I have that, and I haven't been able to make a dent in it, so I'm impressed. Really? Good for you.
0: I just add it to like a hyaluronic acid serum, or like my moisturizer, or as I said, a vitamin C serum.
1: So speaking of things that I should be doing more, my product this week is a sunscreen. It's a Japanese brand called Bibake. I picked it up maybe four years ago when I was in Japan for work, and I just filled a suitcase with a ton of products, and I'm slowly making my way through them. When I went on my roof at my office to tan in a socially distant fashion. I brought this and it's an aerosol spray. It sounds like spray paint. And it's marketed as safe for like your hair, your face. It doesn't mess up your makeup. It's super clear. You can't even tell that. it I didn't even think it would work. I was like, I'm definitely getting skin cancer today. Uh, but no, I after maybe like three or four hours in the sun, reading a book, listening to podcasts, I came home and I, I wasn't the slightest bit red. I'm very impressed.
0: What SPF is it?
1: It is SPF 50. And then in Asian markets, they also include PA plus, a PA rating, um, which is just like extra protection against like different types of radiation. And yeah, I really recommend it if you're ever overseas, especially in Japan, Korea. Try to pick up sunscreen while you're over there because they have more advanced ingredient options than we do over here in the U.S.
0: Can you buy it on Amazon or anywhere else?
1: So you have to Google it. Let me spell it for you guys. V-I-B-E-K-E. And we'll also put it on our Instagram, Eyewitness Beauty. They make only sunscreens. They only have like six products. The version that I got was their UV protection spray with the pink floral fragrance, which I know some people are super sensitive to fragrances. They have a version without fragrance. You have to kind of roll the dice and buy it on one of these sites like (laughs) web1.sasa.com.
0: I found it on Amazon. $24.99, free shipping.
1: Well, it's $6 on this website. Look, I think it's more dangerous not to wear sunscreen than to order from some of these import sites.
0: I agree. And it sounds great. Is the sweet floral smell good.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. I hate like the powdery floral fragrance of American like deodorants that you get like secret or whatever. I hate that smell. I think it's in the same family as those, but it's really pleasant.
0: Hmm. Okay, I'm in. We're done. We're done. Thank you for listening.
1: Thank you so much. And please turn into our bonus episode with our friend Alexis page to talk more about ketamine from a patient's perspective.
0: And also remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts.
1: You can follow us on Instagram at eyewitnessbeauty or write us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com.
0: Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abranowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Prezant.
1: We'll be back next week with another brand new episode. So we will talk to you then.
0: Love you like a sister.
1: No, you don't.